downturn violence. There was a lot of pushing and shoving. The protesters were getting shoved to the ground by riot police. And then everyone started chanting, as you might be able to hear them outside right now, no violence. We have now learned that during Tuesday morning's protests, Seattle police had planned massive arrests. But now some officers tell us they were not only surprised by the sheer numbers of protesters, but they were horribly unprepared to make those arrests. Simply, police were overwhelmed and resorted to force to clear the massive crowds. The crowd did not disperse. A few minutes after 10 Tuesday morning, as promised, police took action to clear the streets, first blanketing protesters in pepper spray. Then came the first of what would be many crowd-controlled tear gassings. My photographer and I got caught in a cloud of gas. Let's move it over uh, our coverage to 6th and Union where Megan Black is. Megan, are you on the phone and uh, what's happening if, yeah, at your location? I'm sorry. There's like massive tear gas here. With our eyes stinging and tearing, choking and coughing, we tried to get away from the gas, along with many of the protesters. But even with the pain of the tear gas, some of those protesters still refused to leave the streets. This scene was repeated many times at this intersection, and protesters stood their ground, adamant to stop the WTO meetings. 20 years ago, thousands of environmentalists Union leaders and their members and lots of other progressive forces swept through the streets of Seattle to confront the global corporate beast known as the World Trade Organization, and that would be the WTO. That clip you heard just now is from reporting from a local TV station 20 years ago, and I chose it mainly because of its decent quality. 20 years ago, progressives just didn't have the same kind of technical recording tools like iPhones and small cameras close at hand in the way we do now. And also because you can clearly hear how the Seattle police force, buttressed by all sorts of other police and security operations, tear gassed, pepper sprayed, assaulted, and arrested people who were simply trying to exercise their free speech rights. Today, we are going to revisit that mass uprising, and I will also chat with a progressive candidate running for Congress in Illinois who is trying to take out a longtime Democratic incumbent. This is Jonathan Tassini, and this is the Working Life Podcast for December 4th, 2019. As usual, this podcast is sponsored by the American Postal Workers Union, which fights for dignity and respect on the job and decent pay and benefits and safe working conditions for its 200,000 United States Postal Service employees and retirees and nearly 2,000 private sector mail workers. You can hear this podcast everywhere. Progressive Radio Networks Thursdays at 6 p.m., Spotify, Stitcher, you name it. We are not hidden. You can find us on the internet, anywhere you look. We depend, of course, not just on our major sponsor, but also on small financial supporters like many of our listeners. So please do go over to workinglife.org today 
It's the holidays. After all, people are feeling generous. And click on the podcast tab and look for our link to Patreon so you can become a financial sponsor of the show. So I've talked a lot about so-called free trade on this podcast. As my regular listeners know, it's something I've been writing about and being active around for really 25 years or so. I always use the term so-called free trade because these bad trade deals, whether you're talking about NAFTA or CAFTA or any of the deals since NAFTA, really are deals that are bad for the people of the planet. And people have had to fight against them because they have nothing to do with so-called free trade. All these deals, all of them, are entirely about how to put together rules of the road, rules of the economy that benefit corporations and the elites, not the people. The WTO is sort of the big papa of all the individual trade deals. I want to read a short description from Public Citizen's Global Trade Watch about what the WTO is. And I'm quoting now. Established in 1995, the World Trade Organization transformed the 1947 General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, which was also known as GATT, into an enforceable global commerce agency with one-size-fits-all binding rules to which every signatory country is required to conform its domestic policies. The WTO operates as a Trojan horse mechanism to implement corporate-rigged non-trade policies that often fail in democratic fora. And then the description goes on. And again, I'm quoting, the WTO system and its rules and procedures are undemocratic and untransparent. The WTO has functioned principally to establish rules for the global economy that benefit transnational corporations at the expense of national and local economies, meaning workers, farmers, and indigenous peoples, health and safety, and the environment. And that's the end of the quote. So that kind of gives you the encapsulation of what the WTO is. And that's pretty to the point. It's not for us. It's for them, the big corporations and the wealthiest. It's a system that exploits people, takes from them, robs from them, and gives even more wealth to the global elites. It's a system that has enjoyed support from both major political parties in the United States. After all, the WTO came into being in 1995 in the Clinton administration albeit after years of negotiation, but Bill Clinton was one of its biggest cheerleaders. Now, could corporations do what they want to do without the WTO system? Of course. Corporations do what corporations do. They exploit people. But what the WTO did was create rules that aided corporatization and put the drive for profits into hyperdrive, probably mostly by going after laws that try to protect people. It put in place a system where corporations using country leaders as their errand boys and girls could claim damages for any trade rules that somehow took money from the corporate treasury. Meaning, say, rules passed on behalf of people that might say, hey, you can't use this product because it's not safe. And you can't poison people. Or rules that would say you can't charge immoral prices for life-saving drugs. 
If any of those rules cost corporations money, well, hell, the WTO, the World Trade Organization, was there to help corporations grab back money from countries essentially as penalties, the better to enrich the global plutocrats. Now, the WTO has reached a crisis point. Its ability to decide cases will end effectively December 11th. Now, does that mean it's dead? Well, not quite. As we're going to hear from our good friend, Lori Wallach, who thankfully is back on the show. Lori is really the foremost trade warrior for the people in the U.S. and known throughout the planet for her work. She is the director of the Global Trade Watch, and she just recently published a dynamite op-ed piece on the WTO in, of all places, the New York Times. And I say of all places because the New York Times has been one of the great cheerleaders for so-called free trade going back to NAFTA. It's that op-ed that Lori wrote that I decided to use as an anchor for our conversation. And the fantastic op-ed that you wrote, Lori, for the New York Times, and I do want to note that the New York Times, which has been so much supporting, at least on the editorial board side, so-called free trade over the years, maybe they've shifted a little bit. It's great that they have published this great op-ed that you wrote about the WTO. And because of this anniversary, I just thought your op-ed captured and crystallized the important points that my listeners should know. And I think the first thing that we should start with is a great sentence that you have here in the op-ed, very high up in the fourth paragraph. The dirty little secret is that the World Trade Organization is not mainly about trade. And what I loved about that is that's a point that I know lots of people you've made, I've made over the many years of these so-called free trade agreements, that they're not really about trade, which you could write kind of in one or two pages. It's all about a whole set of rules to protect capital, investors, and corporations, right? Absolutely. So because the agreement was branded with the trade brand to try and sell it, a lot of people associate the World Trade Organization with trade. But of most of the agreements enforced by the WTO, the main tasks are things like imposing new rights and privileges for corporations, like extended monopoly patents. So pharmaceutical companies can charge more, can charge consumers more for medicine, or forbidding, even non-discriminatory regulations for food safety, product safety, environmental protection, things that treat domestic and foreign goods and services exactly the same. Nope. The WTO puts a ceiling on protection but no floor of minimum standards every country has to meet. And it even meddles into things like how we can spend our tax dollars, not on buy local, it's forbidden, not on sweat-free or environmental standards. And a lot of people don't realize that all of those rules, which corporations helped write in favor, have to be adopted domestically. So the WTO's key principle is all countries shall ensure the conformity of their domestic laws, regulations, and administrative procedures with the attached agreements. And unlike, say, the labor rights and environmental treaties, human rights treaties we all care about, these rules are enforceable. Because if you don't change your laws, weaken your protections for the environment and consumers, and give new corporate rights, you can get dragged in front of a tribunal of three trade specialists and have hundreds of millions of dollars of sanctions imposed until you do. Mm-hmm. And the point you make then 
further down in this op-ed, and it follows just exactly on what you were talking about, is sometimes we get a little bit wonky with this stuff. We talk about trade regulations and we talk about standards and corporate power, but this literally ends up being a matter of life and death for so many people. And you point out, for example, that the U.S. has filed challenges, among other things, against policies from India that try to promote access to seeds for poor farmers. And then the second thing that you point out in that same paragraph is that the U.S. has essentially used the threat of the WTO to reverse policies in a number of countries in in terms of access to AIDS medication and other life-saving drugs. So this is literally, this is killing people. So again, most people hear World Trade Organization, they think it has something to do with anti-dumping or subsidies, when in fact, these cases, when they get enforced, mean whether or not somebody in a country like Thailand, which after a threat, WTO threat by the U.S., rolled back its what is called compulsory licensing. It's basically a way you get a generic version of an AIDS medicine. Their program for getting medicine to people with HIV and AIDS was undermined after a U.S. threat against that very important public health policy. And the, the, there are people who died because of that. The WTO rules that require every country have at least a 20-year monopoly patent for all medicines means all those developing countries who didn't before the WTO have those kind of monopolies, which the U.S. didn't until we were a rich and powerful country. People in those countries suddenly faced much more expensive medicine, and people died because of that. With respect to India, that was an early-on WTO challenge by the U.S. against India's constitutional provision saying no patenting of medicines, life forms, or seeds. And it was from the Gandhian era, and the, the language prefacing it explains to ensure that people have the food and medicines necessary to sustain their lives. There shall be no patenting, no monopolies, no licensing of such really commons, things of nature. And the U.S. came back and said, well, our big agribusiness companies patent seeds, and you have to pay. You can't save them and replant. You have to pay each year to plant those seeds. So India, you can't have that law. You have to allow the patenting of seeds and medicines and life forms. And unfortunately, India changed its, its, it changed its constitution and the underlying law. And as a result, you know, people I'm afraid are very familiar with the horrific plague of suicides in India farmers who can't afford the farming under the rules of the WTO and have in despair killed themselves. I mean, it's like a huge plague, like tens of thousands of people. Hmm. And again, just to underscore the point, the problem is that when the WTO then goes after a rule like that, it essentially jacks up the prices of these seeds. Farmers can't get them at a reasonable cost because of the greed of these companies that want to keep their monopoly over the patents. Well, it's even more than it's more than that. So, you know, in India for millennia, farmers would save seeds from one crop to plant for the next crop. And they would go, they trade with their neighbors. Hey, this particular millet works better than this one. This eggplant works better than this one. Look, I have this fluky thing grow. It was a natural mix. This is the best thing that I've seen. Let's let's save the seeds for this one. And seed saving and seed trading was a way of farming. 
And under this patenting regime, basically, the way it generally works is often illiterate farmers get convinced, offered free seeds. They plant them, their patented seeds. And once that is the seed, that is the crop they have, they're not allowed to save them and replant. They have to pay a licensing fee every year. Wow. And so that essentially, again, jacks up the price they can't afford it. And so as you point out, there's been this rash of suicides, a plague of suicides. You go then very well right then into, in some way, the planetary death that we're facing in essentially through this awful system. And you talk about the WTO essentially creating, and I'm laughing sarcastically, a circular firing squad over climate change efforts. So give us a little background to that. Give us the nuggets on that in your own voice. It was really incredible when I read it. It made me just shake my head. Well, there's a link there in the in the New York Times article to a piece I wrote with a very pro-WTO, pro-NAFTA economist uh, from a corporate-funded think tank. We ran it in the Washington Post a decade ago, and we basically said, we disagree on everything on trade, except that if the WTO doesn't get its act together and accommodate its policy space to deal with the climate crisis, then we're going to see a planetary disaster. And here we are 10 years later. And in fact, the WTO has been the place where countries go to attack each other's climate and and sustainable energy policies one after another. So it started out with um, a case that had the European Union and Japan challenging Canadian provincial incentives on renewable energy. Some Canadian provinces were basically giving incentives for production of renewable sourced energy, and the European Union and Japan won a WTO case about that. Then the U.S. went after India for an incentive program relating to solar power and production of solar cells, and then India, and and sadly won, then India retaliated and attacked uh, 20 U.S. states' renewable energy programs and won. So here we have a whole series of laws sacked. And then China's filed the latest case against the U.S. in 2018, going after an additional set of renewable energy policies. So instead of countries basically having the space to take the urgent responses, policy responses necessary to shift over to a lower carbon economy, the WTO is being used as a weapon to attack one by one each of the countries that sticks its head up to try and do a policy that actually would incentivize getting off of a high carbon economy. And I know you know this, and you'll explain this in a second, that when we talk about countries attacking each other, Japan, the United States, China, that's because they're the parties to the WTO agreement, but they are acting as agents on behalf of big corporations and big money, right? Yes. Typically what ends up happening is some particular industry effectively gets a country to, well, I jokingly call rent a country to use the WTO to go after that interest's goals. So one of the most gruesomely obvious ones is when Chiquita Banana rent a country, the U.S., under the Clinton administration and got the United States where not a single commercial banana is grown. (laughs) People have some in their backyards. There's some grown in Hawaii. We don't trade in bananas. 
we did the WTO case attacking the European Union and a bunch of Caribbean islands for a trade, not aid program that the Europeans had with their former colonies in the Caribbean that set aside a certain percentage of banana trade for those very small countries where it's more expensive to grow bananas than the huge sweatshop plantations in Central America. And Chiquita basically got the U.S., despite the fact it's not an industry here, to use our name and our use of WTO enforcement to attack the European Union and the Caribbean countries and wipe out that program. That's what Chiquita wanted, so that their slave labor Central American banana plantations could have more access in, in Europe. Right. And so the main point to make here is it's not as if the citizens of any country, certainly not in this country, other countries, they're not the ones standing up and saying, oh, go after China or go after Japan. It's these big corporations like Chiquita and certainly in the uh, energy renewable area that are using countries as their tool, attacking the uh, attempts to address climate change. Um, So to, to wrap up, do you see this moment as an opportunity for us, meaning people like you have been real leaders on this for 25, 30 years, the people who have really led this, do you see this as an opportunity now to change the WTO permanently, partly because there's this populist uprising around the world, frankly, uh, partly about corporate power? And certainly, as you and I have talked about in the past on this podcast, Donald Trump has used that. He certainly used that in 2016 when he attacked NAFTA. I make the point that he was no friend of the working person. But more importantly, it's connecting with people, right? It's really drifting and it's penetrating into people's consciousness. Well, here's the thing. The WTO has now finished 242 of those cases where one country attacks another. In only 22 of the cases has the domestic law survived. And in a growing number of countries, basically people in the countries, but some of the governments are starting to get a little bit concerned about WTO overreach. And during the Obama administration, actually, the Obama administration started a protest after, at the WTO, after a diplomatic protest, after the WTO had, had basically made up a bunch of rules the countries had never agreed to. And now the Trump administration's doubled down on that Obama-era protest and basically has refused to appoint new appellate tribunalist decision makers for that enforcement body. As a result, on December 11th, the WTO will cease to function with its enforcement. It's a huge existential crisis. So in the face of that, you'd figure, ha, they haven't been able to finish a single negotiation. Their WTO expansion agenda that initially was derailed in Seattle and then over and over again for the next 15 years that they finally gave up on their negotiating efforts have been zilch. Now their enforcement capacity, which was their one remaining function, is going to go out of business in a couple of days. And you would assume at this point, perhaps the WTO secretariat and some of the leading countries would say, hmm, maybe we should reform some of these rules as people have been demanding for two decades. But no, instead (laughs) their agenda going forward brace yourself. Everyone put down a hot (laughs) beverage if you have one hoisted. Their goal is to expand the rules again. And I kid you not, the new goal is to prohibit governments from regulating in the e-commerce sector or regulating any of the big online platforms. So as the whole world is saying, we have to break up these monopoly privacy crashing and small business crushing 
people abusing platforms with their numerous forms of discrimination and, and cheating. What's the WHO trying to do? They're trying to do an agreement to create handcuffs in every government so the big platforms can't be regulated in the global economy. So that's their response is to do one more time what they've done over and over, which is to meddle further into people's lives. So no, I'm not hopeful that there are going to be meaningful reforms. And honestly, I am not one bit sad that the WTO is going to lose its enforcement capacity because given the total disaster they've made over the last 25 years, best they don't have enforcement capacity given how terrible their rules are. Mm -hmm. But maybe then this is the last question to follow up on that. Do you have any hope in terms of the domestic politics here in the United States? Because obviously, if the U.S. doesn't want to play ball with the WTO, then the WTO will effectively collapse and cease to be meaningful, I think. And so the question is, do the domestic politics in terms of the outcome, I'm not asking to endorse anybody specifically, but generally speaking, Democrats, or at least some of them, have been much more skeptical of the role of these places like the WTO. So it might matter in terms of the WTO's future, the, in terms of the outcome of the 2020 election. Yep. So I wouldn't hold your breath to be polite about it, okay. that the Trump administration is going to do the right thing in the midst of this crisis. Mm -hmm. Now, they've helped for sure by fomenting this we're not budging, change or die scenario, and they deserve credit for it. The United States Trade Representative Bob Lighthizer has been a longtime critic of the WTO's undemocratic um, secretive operations. However, in the midst of that crisis, there's not the, the set of things they're going to ask to get fixed are not the same set of things that progressives would demand. It's the same situation with China trade. Yes, we have to have a new policy. Yes, the current situation is totally untenable. Yes, it's really good to be tough, stand up, and create a big fight, but the demands are not necessarily the right demands. So same situation with the WTO, which means what happens after 2020, if there's a new Democratic president, is totally determined by the elections because you've got a really clean divide. You've got Sanders and Warren, both of whom would be for the kind of progressive changes and would stick to no, we're not reopening shop here unless and until you make changes, and they would be pushing the right changes. Then you've got Mayor Pete and Vice President Biden, who basically are of the old camp that got us into the disaster of NAFTA and WTO, who think the status quo is just fine and, in fact, probably would undo the current blockade on dispute resolution and let the WTO spend the next 25 years doing another 250 attacks on domestic law. It's a very bright line on this issue. Bobby Rush has been in Congress since 1992. 1992! He represents the first congressional district, which includes much of the south side of Chicago and extends into the city's southwest suburbs. It actually covers just under 100 square miles, making it one of the 40 smallest districts in the United States. Don't forget that in case you're on Jeopardy. 
It's a strongly Democratic district. It's changed slightly, but it's still strongly Democratic. He was once thought of, or at least had the credentials of being a so-called progressive. He was, in fact, the co-founder back in the day of the local Black Panthers chapter, but that was a long time ago. And now he's got a challenger, a very strong young progressive named Robert Emmons Jr. Robert is 27 years old and is making gun violence a central part of his campaign, along with a whole list of very progressive positions on Medicare for All and the Green New Deal. And he's talking about all that as he crosses the district knocking on doors and as he looks to take down Bobby Rush. While Emmons won't take corporate money, Rush pockets money from the fossil fuel industry and corporate PACs, and he was buddy-buddy with the odious, now former Chicago mayor, Rahm Emanuel. You can read about Robert Emmons and his positions at robertemmons.org. His last name is spelled E-M-M-O-N-S. And he joins me now. When I looked at your website and checked out all your policy, Robert, obviously you're a progressive down the line. And one of the things that I noticed was that you start as a main issue, even separate from your list of important priorities with a pledge around gun violence. And I wonder if that is something that is especially motivating you in your run for Congress. In other words, the violence around guns in your community and across the nation. Absolutely, Jonathan. Uh, thank you so much for, for that question and centering us around our core issue, which is gun violence and the solutions to gun violence um, are interconnected. So yes, it is one of the, 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 main, uh, the main focuses of our campaign. And that's because when I moved to Chicago, I distinctly remember um, every couple months having to crowd around with my classmates in an auditorium in our Teachers will tell us that we had just lost a friend, a family member, a classmate to gun violence the weekend before. And I distinctly remembering the injustice that it is that in a community like ours, uh, that's just the norm. Uh, and I remember thinking that we can change that from the ground up as long as we come together as a community um, and be resilient and focus on progressive policies. Uh, but it wasn't until uh, I went to the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and I did so with two of my high school friends, um, and I watched one of the, their grades begin to slip, and um, eventually he was kicked out of the University of Illinois, um, and he turned deeper and deeper into poverty, and, and he turned to illegal activity in an effort to support himself. And in a few years, he was shot and killed. Um, that gun violence taken an entirely new shape for me, um, and it became much more serious. Um, and I became much more passionate about ending everyday gun violence because it had directly impacted me. And I, I seen up close all the barriers that led up uh, to my friend being killed um, in Chicago. Uh, and since then, I've rededicated my entire life towards being part of the solution. And so it seems to me that part of the gun violence issue breaks down into actually two factors. One is the point that you referenced essentially is that there's so much economic deprivation in communities and this often fuels um, violence in all sorts of communities across the country. But the second part is, it's just literally the power of the National Rifle Association, right? The, the way in which we have too many guns in society and the NRA just essentially buys off our 
politicians and blocks every single attempt to take guns off the streets. So I assume you work on both aspects of that as you think about policy and what you would do as a Congress member. Uh, so the way we look at gun violence prevention um, as a whole is, yes, we support and believe it is critical to ban assault weapons, and that includes AR-15s, and we also support comprehensive background checks and closing the gun show loopholes. Uh, and of course, we want to completely dismantle the NRA, which was originally founded for gun safety, but it, it has turned into gun propaganda um, and fear mongering. Uh, but our campaign and our campaign is, is mainly focused on the second, the first part of your of your point, which is addressing systemic poverty and, and not having access to, to qual- high quality education and environmental injustices that exist within our society. So it's looking comprehensively. Um, at the environmental aspects uh, that cause someone to pick up a gun and and increases the chances of someone uh, being a victim of gun violence. Uh, so that's what we're focusing on, and we're trying to get the federal government to truly understand that gun violence is a public health epidemic, and we want to end everyday gun violence, the type of gun violence that I experience in communities like Auburn Gresham and Inglewood and Woodlawn and Chicago and in other states across the country. And to address gun violence, the everyday gun violence that we're experiencing, we have to look at it from a, a sense of wraparound services in order to actually end it. And like I said, we have to address it as a public health epidemic. Now, you call yourself on your website a social innovator. What does that mean to you? <laughs> it doesn't mean a whole lot in the United States, but internationally, um, and it's becoming a growing field in the United States, uh, essentially what it is. As a social innovator, designs innovative ways to solve social problems. And I've done that in the environmental justice space. I've done it in immigration, uh, immigration reform. I've done it in criminal justice system uh, reform. So it's essentially just looking at a problem, going through the design thinking model, and working with your communities to solve it. Every single thing that I've ever done, uh, I've done it with people. I've done it with the community. Uh, and that's really how a social innovator orients themselves. Um, It's based off this idea that one person can't solve all these problems, but when we come together as a community all focused on justice, then we can solve all of these big problems, but we have to do it together. It's kind of like the Bernie Sanders uh, slogan, which is uh, not me, us. And that's really the the orientation that all social innovators bring to the table. And you, so you mentioned environmental justice. Give me a sense of the something you did that was socially innovative in that space. And environmental justice specifically. So one thing that we've done uh, while I was at the University of Illinois, we began connecting the idea of lead in our drinking water um, and how that is interconnected to gun violence, um, the gun violence that we see in communities like Chicago. Uh, for example... Lead in our, it's, there's been plenty of studies that determined that lead in the drinking water underdevelops the minds of our young people as they matriculate into adulthood. Uh, and the part of the brain that's most underdeveloped is the part of the brain that makes rational decisions, i.e. whether or not to pull a trigger could be related directly to the water you drink at two years old. So I worked on a study at the University of Illinois with some folks from around that community to begin talking about the interconnectedness of all of these issues as it relates to what I'm passionate about, which is gun violence. And that's really what a social innovator does. We look at a problem and we don't just go straight to the solution. We work and research and work with the communities and bring the communities uh, into the decision-making process to actually solve these big problems. 
that's one example of how we've used social innovation um, in the environmental justice um, sector to address a problem like gun violence. And also there's educational uh, benefits to addressing the lead in our water crisis that exists in disinvested communities all across the country. And you have a very extensive list of positions on economic issues, which uh, this is what this podcast focuses on a lot, economics, labor, workers, and wanted to just pick out a couple of the points you make. And the first one was the perhaps obvious one to many progressives that the minimum wage, the federal minimum wage has to be raised because it's now a poverty level wage to what we all call living wage. And then you say, something quite interesting, working people should not have to sell their labor at below the cost of living. So the cost of living is so different in many places, although we know, generally speaking, people spend way too much money, for example, on rent now, or certainly much higher than it ever used to be, because just finding decent housing that you can live in, the rents are too high in certainly most city urban areas. What's your notion of what the minimum wage should be, and how does that relate to a living wage in your view and your thinking? Yeah, so we've been dancing around with this from a policy lens in terms of a living wage and what that means depending on where someone lives uh, based off of the schooling, based off of housing, uh, based off of the average income for a specific, uh, specific job. So as a country, we have to really, really get creative with how we're even determining a living wage. Uh, and that's how we invest in equity um, rather than equality. Equality is giving everybody the exact same thing. Um, equity is making sure that every single person, uh, based off of a variety of different factors, has what they need in order to survive. So that's why we, we are so fixated on the idea of a, of a living wage uh, rather than just simply saying a minimum wage. Um, and that allows and that pushes us as a country to move towards equity within our policy prescriptions to these really big problems, like folks not being able to afford rent um, in, in their city, like folks not being able to, to go to school or work in a job that fits their passions because they have to just make ends meet, or they're working two to three jobs just to put food on the tables. Uh, so that's why we're focused on a living wage rather than just saying a minimum wage, because a minimum wage is this broad um, kind of overarching policy prescription to something that has nuances. Um, and it's individual factors play into uh, what qualifies someone being able to live uh, a, in, a, in a sustainable way and what they can achieve up mobility in America. Right. And it is very controversial or at least hard to pull apart because actually, and I've made this point in this podcast repeatedly over two or three years, that if you actually look at how hard people have worked and how productivity has gone up in the last 30 to 35 years, the minimum wage should be over $20 an hour. The federal minimum wage should be over $20 an hour. And that's not even clear that when you get to that level in many places that that's a living wage, because if you just do the math, if you just do the math, you can't actually pay the rent uh, pay your groceries, your gas, maybe put a little money aside for an emergency. Even that isn't high enough. Exactly, exactly. And I, I love what I love how you're thinking about this holistically. And I also talk about uh, wage uh, from a lens of our young people going to college. Um, so, for example, if if a if a student is has to take out fifty thousand dollars. Um, and student loans to in order to graduate from a school like the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. 
uh, after they graduate, let's say they get a $40,000 job, which is pretty common in entry-level America, uh, their student loan payments are upwards of $500 per month. So this means that with that $500 per month in student loans, by the end of the year, they are still, the same student is still either at or below the poverty line, which is $24,000 in the United States of America. Uh, so that's what we're talking about when we talk about a, a living wage, just adding all these factors um, that are that are crippling our, our country and, and, and preventing our young people from actually obtaining upward mobility um, in our society. Um, that's because I don't think we've thought through completely as a, as a nation uh, what equity looks like when we're, when we're prescribing uh, these solutions to these really big challenges. Mm. And speaking of equity, in your list of economic proposals, you interestingly include reparations for descendants of slaves and indigenous peoples, because that really is a very important piece of equity if you go back generations to look especially at what's happened to indigenous people, uh, the descendants of African Americans, and you look at the way in which those folks literally are always at lagging behind because lagging behind economically because of the traditional way in which it, they've been discriminated against. And you sort of cite a couple of things as solving this, not just for Congress to study the issue, but also to really look at credit revitalization, debt forgiveness. So talk a little bit about where reparations fits in your vision. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and a lot of the criticism that reparations often gets um, is is about uh, the fact that um, folks say that slavery happened 200 years ago, and we should, you know, we should we should stop sowing bad for ourselves, and uh, we get we are all now just get over, it, get, right? over get over it, it. Get, get over it, get over it, yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. But research over and over and over again has pointed to the the mere fact that. There are people in this country, billionaires specifically, that are still benefiting from the free labor that slavery gave. Uh, so in that same breath, if, if we could point directly to wealth generated by, uh, by the effects of slavery and, and slavery being done on stolen land, uh, then we can trace the harm done by, by slavery and the, the effects of stolen land. Uh, so that way we have, in that breath, we have to, to, to heal as a country, and the only way to do that is is to truly repair, uh, to apologize, uh, and and to also move the country into a place in which everybody truly is on equal playing field. Um, to do that, we have definitely proposed reparations as part of that of that vision of achieve, achieving racial equity. Um, and the reason why we talk a lot about credit revitalization um, is because we we do also support um, actual cash payouts. But before we do that, we want to make sure that we're doing it sustainably. Uh, so one of the big things that uh, that I would do if I received money from uh, uh, from the government that is owed to me because I'm an American descendant of a slave, uh, I would pay off student loans. Uh, I would begin to pay off interest rates uh, that have been given to me just because of the color of my skin. Uh, I would pay off uh, my my healthcare bills because I didn't have an adequate amount of resources in, in order to provide for my myself uh, at the time. I think it's just a matter it's a matter of making sure that we are we are truly repairing uh, the, the negative impacts of slavery and the negative impacts of stealing land from indigenous people. And to do that, reparations is one vehicle 
for achieving the end of the racial wealth gap. So on the practical level of you running for Congress, you're running against a longtime incumbent, a somewhat entrenched incumbent, although I think like lots of progressive candidates who are challenging incumbents in primaries, you often find that most voters either are not tuned into who is even in office, who the incumbent is, or they're detached, very few people, or relatively small percentage of people even vote in these kind of primaries. But what's your kind of day-to-day life as a candidate? Are you walking the streets, knocking on doors? What's the actual mechanics of the campaign? Yeah, so it's it's been a true honor, honestly, to be able to run for congressional office, um, to be able to hear the stories of the our constituents and being able to to every single day work on solving these really big problems with my community. Um, so what's my day look like? My day looks a lot like raising money um, and meeting people where they are. The raising money aspect of it um, is in the forms of, of call time. So as a candidate who isn't taking a dime from any corporation or the fossil fuel industry or the pharmaceutical industry, like my current incumbent is, um, a lot of my time is dedicated to, towards calling folks um, in my district, around the state of Illinois, and around the country, asking for their support. And so far, we've been able to attract contributions from over 46 different states. And that's testament to the vision that we have um, for achieving a world in which this is the last generation to be faced with everyday gun violence. Um, and they also, more than their money, they, they give me insights into what they care about. Um, and we begin to build those bridges uh, through a five-minute conversation on the phone. So again, it's much more than about money. We're also learning from one another, and that's how we build a stronger America. Uh, so that's the that's part of the day. And then the other part of the day is again meeting people where they are, uh, going out into the streets, um, asking folks in the district what they care about and how they how they would like their representative to help them solve our issues together. Uh, and a lot of it is um, is really again just meeting them where they are, and then it's also meeting greets. Uh, so I'll be at a, a, a church later on today, meeting community members where they are. Um, they invited us over to to share our vision with them. Um, and there's also community meetings in which I go into a room and I just listen uh, to the to the issues of, of the community and we problem solve together. Um, and, and lastly, we, we sometimes do reverse town halls in which I'm asking a lot of questions and I'm asking the folks that come for their stories and their policy prescriptions. Um, because I was raised not to believe that uh, I have a monopoly on best ideas, uh, but the best idea we, that we have is that we don't have a monopoly on best ideas. So in that regard, it's important for me to be listening as much as I'm talking. Uh, so that way I'm well-informed once we actually make it uh, to the halls of Congress. And that's what we've really been missing in this district, the Illinois First Congressional District. Um, we're missing a listener. The current incumbent, Bobby Rush, has one of the worst voting records of all members of Congress. So he's missing in D.C. and he's also missing in our district. Um, And we deserve a lot better, uh, both in this district and around the country.
That'll do it for this week's podcast. Thanks to my guests, Laurie Wallach and Robert Emmons Jr. Our audio editor, as usual, is David Hebden. Thanks to our major sponsor, the American Postal Workers Union. And of course, please do subscribe and support this podcast. We really exist on many of our listeners who are small contributors to the podcast. So please go over right now to workinglife.org, click on the podcast tab and go over to Patreon and become a small financial sponsor at whatever level you can afford. Thanks for listening. Look forward to having you back next week. Thank you.